This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spent half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains of Central Oregon. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life, even now as a media creator and a beer professional. This is how Mountain Sea Media was born. I realized how impactful stories are to our lives and business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 33 of Good Beer Matters. Sensory scientists have gone wrong in many ways by just kind of speaking this really jargony language. Most people can build sensory acuity over time. When it comes down to it, if most people apply themselves and start developing their language around flavor, they become, quote, good tasters. Decades ago, when craft beer was the wild west of flavor and ingredients were hard to come by, assuming someone knew what to do with them, studying the quality of beer was unheard of. Sure, the big breweries probably had food scientists in their employ, but I'll bet you a beer that was to ensure consistency for the sake of revenue. The small brewers who tinkered in their garages with salvaged dairy equipment back then couldn't afford labs and likely relied on tasting alone to evaluate new beer. This school of hard knocks approach helped later generations brew smarter and to finally learn what beer could taste like. Our next guest is a sensory scientist who spent nearly a decade at New Belgium Brewing. She now helps breweries large and small set up sensory programs and to taste all the bad beer so we consumers won't have to. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 33 of Good Beer Matters with sensory scientist and co-founder of Draft Lab, Lindsay Barr. sensory and beer and and everything else but um uh will you please introduce yourself and for those listeners who don't know you or know your work will you please uh kind of give them a little bit of, of your background in in beer sure thing um so yeah i have been in the brewing industry for uh, about a decade most of my career has been spent at New Belgium Brewing Company. I've uh, been at New Belgium for around eight years as a the sensory manager. Um, before that, I was at UC Davis studying food science and technology. I worked on gluten-free beer with Dr. Charlie Banforth and thoroughly enjoyed my time um, studying under him. Uh, before that, I was at University of New Mexico studying biochemistry and molecular biology. Um, but sensory is, is kind of my, my love and my passion. Um, a few years ago, where I've been 
focusing most of my love is uh, with a, the software program that we've been, that we've created called Draft Lab. Um, Draft Lab was really created to lower the barrier to entry for breweries of all sizes to get into sensory. Um, I, I've heard over and over and over from breweries of all sizes that, you know, I should be doing sensory, but it's, you know, not something that I'm really able to be doing now at, at this stage of development in my brewery. And, you know, my response to them is like, well, you taste your beer, right? <laughs> like, so, so you are doing some kind of sensory. So the, the concept that drove us in the draft lab world was really just to create something to um, increase the validity and the robustness of sensory programs of all different sizes for breweries at all stages of development. Um, so we've been working on that for the last couple of years, and um, that's where I spend all of my time now. You just laid out effectively what is going to be the perfect outline of what what I hope to talk about today. Um, um, uh, but I feel like we should start at the beginning. One of the first things you said, Lindsay, was you went to school for beer. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, a lot of people might giggle at the sentiment of going to college to study beer because I guess in some manner, shape or form, everyone goes to college to study beer. Uh, but you actually <laughs> took it to an academic level. Um, uh, can you tell me about uh, the conversation you had with either your parents or or uh, your peers that said, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to study effectively beer? What was that like? Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny question. I think whenever I tell people on a, on an airplane or whatever what I do, they kind of giggle and and basically deduce it down to, so you drink beer for a living. And instead of actually explaining what I do in further detail, I usually just kind of roll my eyes and say yes. Um, (laughs) And that's kind of what it's looked like uh, from the outside. But anybody who's in food and beverage um, understands that beer is a very viable industry. In fact, um, many, a lot of money goes into making beer and a lot of money is being made as a result of making beer. Um, so it's certainly a, a valuable industry, and it, it maybe just gets a, a funny rap just because of the drunkenness that is assumed to oh. come as a result. Um, but yeah, I mean, when when I told my family that I was going to go to school to study beer, um, they kind of giggled, but they they really kind of had a good understanding living in California um, what that meant with a, you know a place that is so focused on agriculture and and flavor, and there are, there are massive industries that are built around that, so they really did understand um, what it was that I was doing, and um, it took them a little bit of time to really get on board to see that I can get a, a legitimate job in the beer industry. Um, but of course, this industry has grown a lot and um, we are able to now kind of get people from all sorts of different areas of life and um, various levels of expertise into the industry because it is, um, in fact, something that is 
worthwhile um, and demands expertise. Well, and I asked, and I asked uh, Dr. Tom Shellhammer from Oregon State University a, a, a different a, a variation of the same question about all the students that he sees, and, and asked him if he ever got any uh, strange emails of, from parents wondering why the heck their kid wants to study beer. And he, he effectively said it's really not a thing. I mean, beer is a billion-dollar industry just in the U.S. alone, and and there's so right. much agriculture and science and art and literature and and um, you know. We could go on and on and on, um, but it is there's so much to learn, um, and the uh, the pathways to knowledge are just so deep that I mean you could just sit with beer, and and I and you know frankly if I had had someone ask me a similar question on the airplane I probably would say something like I you know I, I taste bad beer so you don't have to or something along those lines, <laughs> just just because mm-hmm. people people need to understand it's difficult to make good beer consistently that people want to drink consistently. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that's um, really the focus of, of what we are doing at Draft Lab. We're really trying to create tools that are built around giving brewers the ability to detect various anomalies, off flavors, and, um, and also just for general consistency. So um, it's really, it's not the most complicated thing in the world to do, but we've, I think we've kind of gone wrong in many ways. Uh, sensory scientists have gone wrong in many ways by just kind of speaking this really jargony language and um, making these methods appear to be more complicated than they actually are. And so when it comes down to it, all that we're trying to do in this industry is create something that's pleasurable, that people want to, to consume, that people want to drink, and uh, and we want them to be able to do it over and over again. So we also need to do it in a consistent manner. So make something that's delicious and then continue to do it consistently um, so that we can build. I mean, we're building our brand on the flavor of our product. That's really where our brand um, shines is when we're talking about how does, how, is, how does this taste? How does this make you feel? Um, and that's what we're doing in, in the sensory world and what we're trying to quantify and just generally measure uh, with, with Draft Lab using Draft Lab. So um, I want to I want to um, kind of take a quick little detour before we come back to all this, if that's okay. And and I'm gonna and Lindsay, I'm gonna ask you to get real with me here. Um, you have you have done a lot in the beer business. You have uh, done sensory for a New Belgium, a very large national brewery, international in some respects, to my understanding. Um, you have a higher education on it. What wakes you up in the mornings at this point? I mean, do you ever get tired of talking about QA and sensory? Yeah, yeah. What's getting me excited right now? Um, yeah, I am. I can honestly say that I have loved this industry and I've loved my job in sensory from day one. Um, and and I can honestly say that as I've grown as a sensory scientist, I, I more identify myself as a sensory scientist than as a brewer. And somewhere down the line, that changed. I got into sensory as a result of beer, um, but now I'm definitely a, a sensory person that happens to work in beer. And I, I love them both. Um, but what gets me up in the morning is just how, how young the sensory industry is. Um, how young the science is and how much we have to learn. Perception 
is in in many ways still at this like philosophical level. Um, and so as a sensory scientist, you have to really be drawing from many different disciplines to kind of make sense of, of what it is we're doing. Um, so what makes me excited is that this is an industry that is going to continue forward. Uh, it has basically no end in sight. There's still so much that we have to learn. And we get to apply what we know to be true right now to make real-world decisions. And that is really energizing. When I can talk to a brewery and I can see the impact of um, what the tools that we've um, created have had on the outcome of their finished product, uh, that is incredibly encouraging and so much fun to see. So I get to meet people from... Um, all different sizes of, of brewery, um, all different, you know, food industries. And ultimately, a lot of the questions that we all have are largely the same. What am I going to make? Are people going to like it? How am I going to do it consistently? Um, what happens if I change process parameters? Um, you know, and those are kind of the basic questions that that occur throughout every different food industry. Um, so it's really, I've been energized by seeing the parallels between beer and different and other food products. Um, and I'm energized by seeing really simple methods work in a very powerful and meaningful way to make real world decisions um, at the production level. It's pretty cool. And, and, and what you just described are questions that everyone would ask, but of course, you also get to ask questions such as, where the hell did that rubber tire aroma come from? So you, so you go to a, a much, much higher level uh, and, you know, so that the rest of us don't have to, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, yes, it, it is both, both a blessing and a curse um, to kind of be able to have the level of training that I've been able to have through my time at New Belgium. Um, that's, that's been in, incredibly valuable. Um, and it's, it's, um, helped me kind of hone in my skills on being able to detect various aromas and, and describe them. And this is a skill that is just learned. It's learned through practice. I've, I've talked to many people that have said, oh, I'm just not a very good taster. And, you know, maybe this just isn't for me. And when it comes down to it, if, most people apply themselves and start developing their language around flavor. They become quote good tasters. If they can describe something that they're experiencing, if they can um, detect any kind of variability, even if they don't know exactly what that is chemically. And if they don't know exactly where that comes from um, in the process, it's still very meaningful for people to be able to develop their skills well enough to be to um, detect if something is just generally off. Well, let me uh, um, let me that ask. That happens in practice. Let me ask you about mm -hmm. that because I I had always learned that um, you know we all had genetic predisposition to be either better tasters or lesser tasters, not good or bad, but just some people were better, some people worse. And then there was that whole myth around the whole, uh, uh, you know, when it first came out, my wife and I used to watch that TV show, Top Chef, and they always talked about super tasters uh, who could, you know, taste anything and everything and, 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 and pick out the parts of the complex soup, whatever it was. Can you dispel that myth? I mean, it, what's the reality of all that? Yeah, 
Um, I still get asked that question pretty frequently, um, you know, if I'm a super taster, if I know any super tasters, or if my panel, if I have any super tasters on my panel. And um, my question, or sorry, my answer to that question is always, yeah, they're all super tasters. Yes. Um, and the, the super taster uh, myth is really, it was built on one study, a few studies, um, that basically showed that people with a um, heightened sensitivity to a certain bitterant molecule um, were then designated as super tasters. Uh, this was done in a just single chemical solution, and it was basically determined that if somebody can has a heightened sensation to this bitterant molecule, that they are, um, in effect, super tasters. And that's, to so me, that's it was a not terribly... It's not terribly meaningful, right? Like, it's not terribly meaningful to say these people are really sensitive to bitter. Okay. Um, I mean, it's it's nice to know that there are various levels of sensitivity to various different chemicals, but that doesn't make them necessarily a, a better taster than anybody else. It just makes them more sensitive to one specific bitterant molecule. Um, so that's that's a uh, <laughs> so going back to like the original idea. I, I do think that the for the most part, if you can apply yourself and practice tasting and describing what it is you're experiencing, um, most people can build sensory acuity over time. Um, it's it's similar to just you know training for a marathon. Um, you know nobody is like necessarily born a runner. Some people have some genetic predispositions to be, you know, have the right hip angle or whatever. Um, but they still have to apply themselves and they still have to train. Okay. And, um, that's basically, that's basically where one becomes, um, a good taster. Well, and for example, so I, I have a pretty good sensitivity to diacetyl, but I have a relative blind spot to uh, to uh, cattiness and butyric acid, and frankly, thank God. But there are other people mm -hmm. I know that are the exact opposite. They can pick up cattiness and butyric in almost anything, but they can't uh, smell or taste diacetyl to save their life. Um, but that's not mm -hmm. that's not a an assumption of one of us is better than the other. It's just it's important to understand that we all have our sensitive sensitivities and our idiosyncrasies, and we just need to know where our blind spots are to train those to look a little bit harder for that cattiness. Um, for example, uh, does that sound about right? Yeah, I mean there are certainly panelists that um, are blind to various attributes and. That is, you know, we're all, we all have our physiological differences and that's what makes us all wonderful, beautiful human beings. And <laughs> how that plays out in the world of sensory sciences, we have our blind spots and we have our sensitivities and that's why we need to work together in a, in a community, in a, in a panel kind of setting to be able to determine um, on, on a more rounded, holistic basis if this beer is the right beer that we wanted to make and is it free of various defects. So um, I'm, I'm immediately wary of any kind of panel that is built on one or two people, um, especially if they're, you know, if they're people of authority, um, because that basically means that you, you're, you're acknowledging that, um, well, that they're not acknowledging that they do have blind spots in their palate and, and we all do. Um, and so 
we definitely encourage people to build panels of five, six, however many people they can get, um, and kind of make decisions together um, to determine if something is is in or out. So um, you definitely do have to work with other human beings to get a full picture of um, what the consumers are potentially going to experience. Well, if someone does not have access to someone like yourself, um, but uh, but she wants to train her palate to become a beer judge or a Cicerone, or he just wants to do his job better because he works around beer, um, what are ways that uh, that you know these people can learn to improve their palate, even even without access to a sensory program or or otherwise? What would you recommend? I think just generally practicing um, uh, just mindfulness and general awareness around your experience. Um, I and mean, we all eat food and we drink beverages and we smell flowers and, you know, it's just a matter of really taking in what your surroundings are giving to you and trying to describe that in a more meaningful, pointed way. Um, so as you're drinking a beer, so just bringing this back to beer, as you're drinking a beer, really pay attention to what does it look like? What is the hue? What is the, the, um, what is the color? What is the foam? What is the clarity? What is it doing to the side of the glass? How's the lacing? Um, like really paying attention to the visual aspects of the beer and then taking more time to, um, understand the aroma. And, you know, for the most part, we draw from our previous experiences. So if you were to drink, smell a beer and you had never smelled, a rose before, you're not going to pick out that geranial rose-like character in beer, and you're not going to be able to describe it. You'll be able to, to experience it, but you can't really describe it. So, um, I mean, I would just encourage people to take more time, smell the roses, as it were. Literally. And, Literally. Go smell um, the roses. You know, really bring in the experience. I, I remember, um, I guess it's been a couple of years ago now, uh, quite a few years ago since he that since he's done this, you may have seen this, but uh, Gary Vaynerchuk um, had a uh, uh, did a video. Uh, I mean, like he did a, a million videos uh, for his business uh, wine library, and he had a couple of these where he was trying to teach people how to uh, identify aromas and flavors in wine. Of course, you and I would translate that into beer, but it'd be the same process where. He talked about okay, you know, if if you want to uh, detect bell pepper in your wine or our beer, then go smell and taste bell peppers. If you want to know what the soil uh, aroma is, go smell some soil. Go lick a rock. Go um, go <laughs> go smell the roses. Go uh, go smell what raw cabbage tastes like versus cooked cabbage. Uh, grab your grapefruit, your orange, your lemon, and 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 smell the differences. What are the, I mean, when's the last time we smelled the difference between an orange and a grapefruit? I'm sure everyone knows the difference, but do you really? What is the aroma mm -hmm. and flavor? What does the zest of the orange taste like versus the white pith versus the white fruit? Mm -hmm. And I think um, attacking the world, like you said, with that mindfulness, but, um, but really trying to collect aroma memories and flavor memories and storing them in your brain for later use um, has been very, very helpful for me. Can you elaborate on, on that experience for you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think as, as the years go on, I, I become more and more curious because I realize that 
you know, if I were given an orange and a grapefruit, I don't know that I would be able to detect the difference between the two. So I do sometimes um, like to just pay a lot of attention to my, my citrus fruits and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's it, paying attention is the majority of like what we should do. And, you know, we, we get really into um, in the brewing industry into like attribute training using chemical standards. And I think that that's a really great thing. It's really uh, very powerful to be able to say that's diacetyl so that we know exactly where it came from and we can troubleshoot the process. Um, but, you know, I would argue that you have to start with an analogy. You have to start with experiencing what butter smells like um, and building a language around butter and then being able to move into that abstraction if if your program sees that as valuable. Um, so, I mean, I, when we're actually focusing trainings, we do have to kind of ground ourselves and acknowledge, okay, what are we really trying to achieve with this? Is there really... Is there really a benefit in building a brand description that is so specific that we're actually talking about the pith of an orange versus the zest of an orange versus the flesh of an orange? Like, what is that going to do for your brand description, and how are you actually going to use that? The answer is, like, it's cool to say, and it, it you know, gives you some kind of, like, credibility if you want to use those terms in marketing or whatnot. But when it comes down to identifying what the key characteristics are in your beer – it's, you know, that kind of uh, nuance is a little bit meaningless. Um, so we don't have endless time to train. So if we know that we, that citrus is an important component in our beer, then we'll train on just general citrus fruits. Um, if we know that lime has to be present in this beer to make it what it is, then we'll train on lime aroma um, and and make sure that our panelists can kind of pick that up. But, you know, sensory scientists tend to get, like, really into the nitty-gritty, and it's nice to occasionally take a step back and say, okay, what are we trying to achieve with this kind of training? Mm-hmm. Um, and and if the answer is, like, uh, you know, uh, the ability to call out a pith and a, or in, and a zest in an orange, like, that's that's not going to actually influence the outcome of uh, the product that we're making. So we try to focus our training on what is most important. So then do you retain the ability at the end of the day when the workday is over and you go have a shifty with your uh, coworkers to just evaluate whether you like the beer, yes or no? Are you able to back all the way out to just that simple first question of yes or no? You know, I I think I've gotten a little bit better at it. Um, I, I won't drink a beer that's not pleasurable, but I'm thinking, is it, do I like this or do I and not I ima- like it? I imagine that's harder um, for you I've, these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as you continue to train yourself, it becomes harder to find beers that are really amazing. But when you do find beers that are really amazing, they're, uh, the delight is heightened. They're super amazing. <laughs> They're super amazing. Yeah, so I, I've certainly gotten better at, at turning off my brain. Um, if I if I detect various flavors that I, I don't find pleasurable, then I, you know, just kind of won't, won't drink it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, um, breweries are really becoming very aware of, um, of quality control, and they're taking it very seriously. Um, and... And I'm I'm drinking a lot of really good beer these days, and it's I'm I'm not unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
so we're, we're, we are getting into the nitty gritty and I'd like to go just a little bit further into the nitty gritty. Um, since you are a sensory scientist, can you explain uh, just the, the uh, for me, it's a very fascinating process of, of the uh, physiology of aroma and taste and how that combines to flavor and how your brain interprets that and how that kind of imprints that experience on your brain. Can you, can you elaborate on, on how that whole process works? <laughs> that, that's a really huge question. Um, yeah, so, I mean, just to break it down really uh, generally, I think aroma is one of those... Well, there's very little known about how we perceive various aromas. Um, we know that it's not necessarily a lock and key mechanism where we bring chemicals into our nose and, you know, uh, there, there are mechanisms, biochemical mechanisms that are very specific to that one chemical. One chemical can connect to various, um, proteins and, um, and give and elicit either the same response or a different response, especially when considering that there are hundreds um, of chemicals in in beer. So if you obviously it's, it becomes very complicated. Um, it's, yeah, it's almost yeah. endlessly complicated. Um, I think that it's always funny that I, I occasionally see research papers coming out that say human beings can detect one trillion different aromas. And, you know, I guess, why do we keep quantifying that? Um, because but, it, but really can they is, name them? it really is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really endless. And, and I've heard something around that, you know, humans can actually reliably detect and name about 30 or 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's, it's, I don't know. I don't know why we're continuing to try to quantify it because it tr- truly is endless. Um, so, you know, we talk about aroma and we, um, the, the most common mistake, I guess, or, or very deviation from physiology is the difference between taste and aroma. Um, typically in our language, we say this tastes like oranges or this tastes like wood or something like that. And what we actually mean to say is this smells like, but we don't we don't phrase anything that way in our normal life. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about taste in our normal life, we're, we're assuming that it's, it's the sensation that you get when you put something into your mouth. But most of that is actually aroma. Mm-hmm. Um, so taste is just, you know, the, the basic taste. And it's been said that there are five. Um, that being said, we're consistently learning of more tastes. So sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, now fatty. Um, and metallic is maybe a taste. Basically, in order to be a taste, you have to have um, you have to have chemical compounds that are within that taste. You have to be able to be um, detected on the palate and have a specific mechanism of transduction to your brain um, to be able to translate that specifically to that taste. Um, and so that that basically limits the number of tastes. Um, if you were to say this tastes sweet, that would be correct, right? So um, <laughs> I'm really going down a rabbit hole. So flavor is kind of the <laughs> compilation of, of aroma, of orthonasal and retronasal olfaction. So orthonasal being when you smell it, what are the volatiles um, coming into your nose and how do you perceive it? And that's, retronasal and that's, olfaction is when you... Sorry, I was going to say in the orthonasal, you know, that's a fancy word for how everyone smells. You just breathe in through your nose yeah. and you smell it. 
And then, right. and then, and then the next retronasal one, yeah. is the opposite. It's you know bringing the food product into your mouth, letting it warm up a little bit, and then breathing out of your nose. It's the exact same mechanism in reverse, and you're just smelling again. And so, um, what is so, how do the yeah. two different uh, orthonasal, retronasal? How do you get differences, or is that is that akin to just you know orthonasal? Is we're just uh, listening to music on a little radio and uh, combining ortho and retronasal just brings it into full stereo. Is, is that the effect or do you get different things? Uh, that's, that's an interesting analogy. Um, with orthonasal, you're only going to get the chemicals that are immediately volatile. Um, so, you know, small enough to where they can actually extract themselves from the, from the solution itself. Um, and, and they, they basically have to be able to be volatized quite easily um, and not upon heating. Once you bring something into your mouth, you heat it up and so you're volatizing more aromas. So you are, in fact, breaking out more chemicals from that solution when you have the beer in your mouth okay. and you're smelling retronasally. So it's it's a more holistic um, kind of impression of aroma. Um, I I don't find it that useful to break out the differences between orthonasal and retronasal olfaction when writing a brand description. Um, I don't I, I don't think that you're ever going to troubleshoot a problem um, if you detected it orthonasally but not retronasally, right? Like. I, I just don't see a lot of, of value in that when it comes down to what decisions am I going to make from this. So um, when we speak about aroma, it's just aroma. Um, it's both orthonasal and retronasal. What does this smell like? Um, and then taste, we certainly want to be able to break that out because you can make meaningful decisions by breaking out taste. You can decide, oh, did this did this beer not attenuate fully? Did we add too many hops and it's too bitter? Um, you know, did we... Um, did we uh, over-attenuate it and it's not sweet enough? Um, so, you know, you can make decisions based on taste if you were to break that out in your brand description. Okay. So I always try to, you know, balance the the, the science and the, the physiology with what are we going to make? What kind of decisions are we going to make in our process as a result of breaking these things out? Okay. And so... Um uh, so we we okay we talked about um, the, uh, improving one's palate. We talked about uh, the science of it, um, but one part that you mentioned earlier was really you know uh, you know we, we can we can detect you know tons and tons and tons even you know millions of trillions of compounds, but we can only name thirty or forty. So that really uh, speaks to having the right vocabulary, being able to put a mm -hmm. name to the face, so to speak. Um, so uh, I, I think we talked about last time um, offline, you talked about how you were trying to uh, update the flavor wheel and, and then took a sharp left turn and came up with the flavor map. Uh, my first question is, why were you updating the flavor wheel? And then can you talk about how that turned into a map instead of a wheel? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, we went to update the flavor wheel a few years ago. I don't know, time is so weird. Um, because, you know, it, while it's a really great, powerful tool, um, it was dated. Um, it was created in 1973, I want to say, by Morton Mylegard. That's a great um, year. Who was, 
yeah, huh. who was well before his time, brilliant sensory scientist, really knew his stuff in beer. It was built um, using light lager, which was 99% of beer at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it needed to be built on craft beers and the various flavors that we get from that. And then also um, some of the taste science, uh, the flavor science, has had changed um, after, after 1973. So we just started the project to at least update some of the things that were just wrong in the flavor map of the flavor wheel, sorry, um, just by, you know, taking mouthfeel out of taste. I think mouthfeel is within taste, which is not necessarily correct. So we we just wanted to, to modify it very slightly. And as we started to look at some of the aromas in there too, um, it, it was incomplete basically because it was mostly built on lager, on light lager. Um, so that basically spurred on this major project where um, I sifted through um, many different databases that exist um, in the public that have been published. Um, just did a, a huge literature search to find what are the aromas that exist in beer. And even better, if they have chemical attributes, chemical compounds that are associated with those aromas, that would be great too. So we essentially built this database um, by taking various resources from the literature and um, ended up with a whole bunch of different aromas that exist in beer. Um, I then cross-reference all of those aromas with some of the research that has been done in the perfume world. They're very good at categorizing aromas. They've been doing this for a really long time. Um, so I cross-reference with a bunch of uh, perfume research to find what are the broad categories that um, other industries use to describe aroma, to describe sensation. Um, so, and then, you know, we kind of had the decision of do we focus this chemical, chemically based or we do, do we focus this on, um, you know, analogy based? And we decided that it was going to be the best thing if everybody can use it from any kind of level of expertise. And hopefully it's somewhat universal um, and, and people understand and can comprehend the, the aromas that are in there. So it also goes based on the levels of perception. So generally, if you're smelling something, you can kind of say like, oh, this is generally fruity. And then, you know, if you have a list of terms that are broader within fruity, like tropical, stone fruit, citrus, you can usually identify, okay, it's not tropical, it's not really stone fruity, it's citrusy. Then if you can see under citrus, okay, well, what kind of citrus? Is it grapefruit? Is it orange? Is it lemon? Um, Is it lime? You can probably say, oh, well, all those things are pretty different. What I'm smelling is most like grapefruit. So it helps the user to hone in on their senses to make the most um, meaningful and pointed description for their product as possible so that they can use that to to measure their success in creating that beer over and over again. Um, or in order to describe what it is they want to make and be able to measure the beers that they are producing um, against an ideal idea of what what a product should be. So that's basically where where the flavor map came from. I actually tried to put all of those aromas in a wheel form, and I have to say it looks terrible. It looks horrible. Um, and... And the wheel itself kind of gives this illusion of continuity, right? It mm-hmm. basically says, yeah. 
aromas on this on the north side of the wheel are in direct opposition to those on the south, and that's not necessarily true at all. Um, so I, I didn't really like the the form and the structure of the wheel. It also kind of like makes you think that you can't really break it. Like the idea of breaking the wheel open uh, seems to be a, a bit of a, a cognitive leap for many of us. And I wanted to put it into a map form so that it can be modified. I mean, it, Morton Milgard even said in his original paper, I expect for this to be talked about, to dis- to be discussed, and to be modified. A flavor has flavor changes and ideas of what um, aromas are what will be modified over the years. Um, so I wanted to put it in a, in a map form so that it kind of made it easier for us to add aromas, to take out aromas, to recategorize aromas um, based on user input. So that's that's the long story of how the social map No, it's great. And, and of course, um, I use, uh, or the brewery that I work for uses Draft Lab for our sensory program. And I just did a sensory panel yesterday and um, you just had a couple uh, flavors and aromas um, that I just couldn't, I just couldn't put the the tail on the donkey on. I, all I could, the best I could do was use um, use my senses and use the vocabulary that you laid forth in that app to basically triangulate uh, around it and get as close as I could. But um, but but that has really helped me uh, add new. Um, aromas and 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 well aromas really uh to my lexicon is just understanding that you know if i smell something that reminds me of a rubber tire store well okay then put that down you're not crazy or or a new mm-hmm. one a new one for me is is diesel uh i i've never experienced diesel in a beer before but but i know that that is out there and it's something to um uh, to be recognized when 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 I finally do come across it, but I, I think having that vocabulary there has kind of helped kind of train me in some respects, and so I I, I appreciate that. It's been it's been really helpful and really valuable. Yeah, thanks, and and that that was kind of the point with um, integrating that lexicon into the Draft Lab app. It's really intimidating and very hard to have a a, a new taster sit down with a beer and be told describe it. Mm-hmm. Just Go ahead and describe it. It's a it's a really difficult thing to do, um, and so we wanted to at least give people a launching off point of like, okay, generally you can say that it's fruity, and then and how is it fruity? Um, so it's it's both a a, a learning tool um, and it's it's also a quality control tool as well. So um, I've and I've definitely seen that in my experience with new panelists. Like, it's really difficult to to sit down to a blank piece of paper and just say, what is the flavor? Um, so um, hopefully we're meeting panelists with uh, where they are by having that integrated lexicon in there. Well, in most non-beer uh, industry people that I talk to, I'll give a taste of beer and ask them what they think. And usually the response I get is something uh, like uh, sweet and or hoppy. Those, um, or, or, or sometimes all people will actually uh, dive one level deeper into hoppy and say it's citrusy. Um, but you know, I hear that for every beer out there and not all beers are citrusy. So, um, this just, this really helps people, um, with, uh, 
have better tools in their toolbox to uh, play what what I call the name that flavor game. And 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 I, mm -hmm. I do this with my children and and other people. I'll say, okay, okay, let's 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 go into this. Name three different distinct flavors or aromas that you can detect, and 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 try and drill down as deep as you can. This this um, flavor map and draft lab has really helped add more tools to that toolbox. Yes, awesome. Thanks. So, so uh, <laughs> I love that you do that with your kids. <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny. My my daughter's really, uh, uh, really taken it. I mean, she'll have something like yogurt, and she'll she'll pick out lemon out of it. Uh, you know, granted, there's there's acid in there, there's lactic acid in there, and she's she's only eleven. So, I mean, how how uh, how sophisticated can she be? But she's looking for it. She's she's going after it. So, sometime from now, it'll she'll be uh, she'll be. She'll be a super taster. <laughs> yeah, super. <laughs> She's a super taster. Um, uh, so, uh, Draft Lab, we talked about the flavor map, but who is Draft Lab for, really? Um, Draft Lab is for um, any kind of flavor, or any kind of food organization, um, brewery in this case who is looking to develop new beers, you know, do a little bit of research um, to do quality control. We're primarily built on quality control. So it's um, any organization who wants to make sure that their products are hitting the flavor targets that they intended and doing it on a consistent basis. So um, we have various tools that are integrated into the software to help our users do that, um, to help them hone in on uh, the flavors, the key characteristics of their of their brands, and detect whether or not those brands are within the normal level of variation that they would see in their facility. Um, they all, it also helps people answer questions around, you know, if I change this parameter in my brew house, what is the impact of the flavor? Is there a difference potentially between that and a control? Um, if so, or if not, what is the magnitude of the difference? So um, we just we have various methods integrated into the software that help people to um, answer the questions that we all have in our in our breweries around um, how to develop the right flavors and how to do it consistently and um, how to how to do it in in a manufacturing facility that is subject to a lot of um, variability, potential variability. So it's it's for breweries, um, small to large, um, and it's for panelists, small to large, um, and any level of experience. Um, there are three different tiers of um, of the software. The basic tier basically allows any really small brewery, maybe with only two or three panelists, um, to just you know catalog that their information to go. Um, create brand descriptions and evaluate individual brands for its trueness to that description. Um, and then the quality control tier is made for breweries who are a little bit larger, have some more, um, have some more tasters available to them and are looking to maybe distribute and are, are looking to make sure that they're making brands consistently. Um, and that the brands that they are uh, releasing out to the public are, are also free of defect. And then the, the high tier, the enterprise tier, is kind of made for those who are looking to do more advanced, um, almost like R&D, understanding what are the intensities of various attributes, um, and then you know troubleshoot some stuff in their process on a, on a more pointed level. And you also have 
uh, various flavor maps for uh, beer flavor, for base malt, for specialty malts, and hop flavor. Can those be used to train a palate, or are these used primarily for your your draft lab sensory programs? Oh, I've, I've seen them be used in, in various ways, um, uh, certainly training. So um, if you're looking to understand the nuances of base malt flavor, um, starting with the base malt flavor map is a really solid tool to help users identify what they're experiencing. Um, and uh, maltsters, I mean, we certainly have maltsters who use the Draft Lab tool to um, to identify any kind of variations in their process. Um, malt and beer are largely very similar. Um, you know, continuous processes where, you know, various anomalies could, could potentially happen. So we have monsters that, that use that as well. Um, the, the hop flavor map is, can be used to, for, for breweries to help identify what hop varieties they want to potentially use for a new branch that they're producing, um, to identify differences between their varieties. Like basically all, all the same stuff that I was just kind of going through, but it gives you a more targeted lexicon um, built from those materials themselves. Hmm. So. Okay. Um, so I know we're getting on in time, Lindsay. Do you uh, do you have still have a few minutes mm-hmm. to uh, answer a few questions that are as easy or as tough as you'd like them to be? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so this this is part of my uh, my wind down question series. I need to come up with a better name for that. But um, um, if you could be the beer queen for a day and, and make any changes you want to the whole industry, if you'd like, what would you change? Oh, wow! That's a that's quite the that's quite the question. If I were the beer queen for the day. Um, you know, I'm actually very optimistic about where beer is going and um, where it's come from. If you think about where beer was in the early 90s, there it was, it was a little bit of a cluster. I mean, everybody was kind of trying to figure it out. And um, over time, um, there's been a lot of, like, sharing of, of processes and uh, just, you know, general knowledge sharing, which has been really lovely and has helped really – um, grow the industry. So I guess as the industry continues to grow and as it continues to become more competitive within itself and also within um, other categories, what I would hope to see for the the future is that people would con- will continue that collaborative spirit that makes our industry so wonderful. Um, and, you know, just we're all kind of working towards the same goal. I understand that it's, it is a competitive marketplace. Um, but I, I think I would, I would hope that breweries will continue to keep the culture of quality alive and continue to grow it. Um, I think I, you know, you can walk into a brewery and you can kind of understand what the culture generally is from almost the, the very beginning. And we all know what it feels like to walk into a brewery where the people really genuinely respect one another and where flavor is the top of at the top of the priority list um i would hope that that continues forward and i would hope more breweries um that aren't maybe in that category recognize the importance of flavor and do get on board because it will be good for um really our entire industry 
<laughs> so, uh, so instead of uh, admonishing uh, the beer industry or making a big change, you would just kind of pat it on the head and say, "Hey, you're doing a you're doing a good job. Keep doing the right thing." <laughs> I would certainly pat it on the head, and and also, um, we also need to be really um, intentional about continuing to foster the relationships that make our breweries um, unique, make this industry really unique. Yes. Um, and I do see that in some ways slipping um, as it continues to get more um, more aggressive um, with with this market, this like shrinking market. So um, yeah, and as and as we get players in the in brewing industry that are um, you know not necessarily passionate about the craft and looking just for to to take a piece of this market um that that's i think pretty dangerous for our industry um so i'm i'm hoping that those that are included in that category will kind of understand how important flavor is and um kind of kind of get on board um <laughs> and so that's that's i know that that's like not I, i'm not going to like break down the industry because i think that it's a really lovely one and i think where it's grown um, is quite incredible, and I just basically don't want to see that go away. Um, and you know, our the culture is certainly has some signs of changing as we, as you know, some breweries get bought out, and mm-hmm. some breweries, um, you know, start to maybe um, close their doors. Um, yeah, where I, I, yeah, I just I just don't want to. I want us all to recognize that we are kind of in, in this together. We're all making beer. After yeah, all. And, and there are those entities that are getting very aggressive, and it's uh, the rest of us need to uh, choose to um, to uh, not follow that lead, not take that bait, and keep the uh, the beer industry collaborative and cool like it has always been. Um, um, yep. so I, that, that's my, that's my interjection on, uh, what's supposed to be, uh, your answer. But, um, the next question is if you had the opportunity to choose your last meal and your last beer, what would they be? Oh, that's also a very good question. Um, I would probably want to drink, uh, an Oud beer soul Creek um, <laughs> so very delicious. Um, and my last meal would probably be some kind of, some kind of sauce. <laughs> Just the sauce. Um, I, I'm trying to like pair the, the two, but the Oud Beersel Creek would probably be really nice with like a really creamy sauce. So probably some kind of like sage butter sauce uh, just with bread so you just, do, you just want to guzzle a glass of carbonara or something like that right <laughs> yeah yeah sure any, anything <laughs> that any kind of stopping mechanism will do I, i'm just in, i'm just interested in the sauce though awesome <laughs> got it you're a purist i love it um, okay. Given all of your education and experiences, and and even that that we talked about today, um, this is our last big uh, big question before we just kind of finish off with some logistical ones. Um, with all of your experience, Lindsay, why does good beer matter? Um, well, good beer matters because I mean we're we're essentially building a, a culture around this beverage. 
I think what's really fascinating is to see the culture of the pub really thrive in America. Um, and that's a very special thing. It's a really special thing to like bring people together from all walks of life and provide this affordable luxury for most people um, and bring them into like the tap room setting where there's uh, communities being formed. And so good beer matters because, you know, it's bringing people together um, and it's, it's creating kind of this, this setting where, where individuals can meet and that wouldn't have otherwise met. And if, if there weren't good, if there wasn't good beer at all these different pubs around town, then essentially that, that pub culture is going to um, really diminish. And I, I don't want to see that happening. Um, I think now more than ever, we need to uh, build bridges between individuals. And I think beer is uh, really speaks a universal language. And um, I don't want to see that go away. I totally agree. Um, last two very simple, easy questions. Uh, if anyone listening wants to either connect with you or Draft Lab, uh, where could he or she go? Uh, we have a lovely website at www.draftlab.com. That's D-R-A-U-G-H-T, lab.com. Yes, it's a British, um, not English, start- or British, not American. <laughs> yeah. Yes, right, proper. Um, and uh, you can certainly reach out to me directly if you want to chat. Uh, my email address is lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y, at draftlab.com. Um, and feel free to reach out to me and say what's up. Awesome. Um, do you have any final words of wisdom before we uh, end the podcast? I think we really hit on a lot. Um, and Yes, we have. Yeah, I think we really hit on a lot. So thank you for the opportunity to, to hang out and have this lovely discussion. And I'm happy to continue it forward um, wherever we meet again. Uh, and thank you so much. I look forward to the day that you and I can share a, a beer and, uh, and try our very best not to uh, nerd out on what may or may not be in there. Um, but, yeah, uh, no, that, we just like it. Or yes, don't like it. yes, it's good. It's good. No, just stop thinking about it. It's good. Just drink it. Um, anyway, right. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your insight, your time, and uh, uh, this, this has been lovely. Thank you. Yes, anytime. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Every brewery, no matter how small, needs a sensory program so that bar patrons won't become the QA team by default. Thanks to Lindsay and Draft Lab, the education and tools are far more accessible to small breweries and aficionados than they have ever been. Check them out at draftlab.com. Join us in the next episode when we talk to a man who, when he has a beer and puts pen to paper, we all get smarter. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.